Welcome back. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com, and this is Raise Your Average. Co-hosting with me is Rodrigo Gordillo, President at Resolve Asset Management Global. Rod, good to see you. What's going on? Not much. You know, same old, same old. Fun markets to be around these days. Absolutely. Our special guest today is Cole Smead, CEO and Portfolio Manager at Smead Capital Management. Cole, welcome. It's, it's great to see you again. Yeah, great to catch up with you and good to meet you, Rod. Nice to meet you too. Guys, before we get started, I want to introduce Cole. Cole Smead is both Chief Executive Officer and Portfolio Manager at Smead Capital Management, where he provides oversight for all company operations. He's Lead Portfolio Manager on the firm's international equity portfolios. Cole brings his highly understated expertise and intellect to every aspect of the company's investment strategies. He's been an integral part of the firm since its, its establishment in 2007. In this episode, we're going to dig into Smead Capital's investment philosophy and four parts of Smead's current investment thesis. So stay tuned. Thank you for listening. And while the music's playing, please take a moment to like us, follow us, hit that subscribe button. And if you like the podcast, we invite you to leave a comment or review at Apple, Google, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. That helps other folks like you find us. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Cool. Welcome back. I know we already said welcome, but uh, it's really great to have you on again. I know we just spoke a few weeks ago. Yep. I think today we'll have a, a slightly different conversation. And and uh, I think to um, to start, I think it would be really helpful if you could tell us about your firm's investment philosophy uh, and the discipline that goes along with it at Smead Capital. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the foundation of our discipline um, really is housed in our eight criteria. And our eight criteria was developed uh, by my dad, Bill Smead, back in the early 1990s. And um, it was really a synthesis of what he considered aspects of various great investors. So Peter Lynch, Sir John Templeton, Warren Buffett, etc. But I will say there's actually a name that most people won't recognize. Um, there was a guy named Barry Ziskin. And, and Barry Ziskin um, actually launched a fund called the Z7 Fund that was actually taken... Uh, I think, if I remember it correctly, it was a closed-in fund that uh, Drexel Burnham Lambert uh, took to markets. And um, they called it the Z7 fund because he had seven criteria. And interestingly, one of those seven criteria was you had to buy a stock at 10 times earnings or less. And then if it hit 20 times earnings, you had to sell it. So think of kind of like smart beta, you know what I mean? Back before we had smart beta is how I think about some valuation aspect of of what Barry uh, uh, did. But one of the uh, uh, stocks that Barry identified early on was Nike, oddly enough. Now, let's just sit down and think if like a PM had bought Nike in the 1980s and sat on it and just maintained like a 5% position, right, for you know the last 40 plus years. Um, they would be the most well-known mutual fund manager of the last you know 40 years, frankly. <laughs> um, they'd be personal friends with Phil Knight, uh, to be downright honest. So I say that because um, you know watching, you, you not only learn it by seeing other people's criteria, but you also learn from other people's mistakes. And using that, um, you know, I, I know who Barry Ziskin is, but no one else in the public investing sphere knows who Barry Ziskin is today. Um, oddly enough, he actually ended up in Mesa, Arizona, um, not far from us uh, towards <laughs> the later part of his career. 
Yeah. But I point that out because that's that's really um, you know that was really integral was to you know be able to watch those other investors. And what what I really like about our eight criteria is, you know, markets change, and our our discipline doesn't have to. So you know uh, what our what our uh, what our investment philosophy gets us to today is owning things like oil and gas, kind of like you and I talked about here in our last discussion. Right. But you know, ten years ago we owned zero there. We didn't own anything. So it's intriguing that you know people think oh that you have a discipline. It's so static. Well, the discipline is really a negative art. You're eliminating things. You're not trying to find things that fit. Um, you're, you're you're trying to prove things don't, and then you don't have to do anything from there. But um, but the markets do change, and change comes. And and whenever I hear people talking about we'll never own this, we'll never own that, that's like saying they know the future, and therefore they already know based on their discipline what's going to happen. And I've yet to run into anyone that can ascertain that in advance. The only other thing outside of our eight criteria I would mention is. You know, we run concentrated portfolios, so 25 to 30 securities. Someone else could have our same eight criteria, but run way more diversified portfolios, plausibly. Um, we don't. That's not part of our discipline. And then we also know that turnover is a big enemy of a long-term investor. So we run, you know, 15 to 25%, historically speaking, turnover in our portfolios. And, and that's, you know, that's in, in effect our investment discipline in a nutshell. Right. So, so Cole. Thanks. Thank you. Um, so I'm a, I'm a quant. Uh, mostly in the managed futures space, but I do read a lot of literature on factor investing. You mentioned yeah. that the uh, the individual that you highlighted was kind of the original smart beta. Um, and so when I think about factor investing specifically on the value stuff, what, you know, you mentioned that you have a disciplined approach and I imagine that is a rules-based approach to, to filter certain ideas. Yeah. How does factor-based value investing or smart beta value investing differentiate from the type of value investing that you just described? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, uh, let me let me give you an example just from an index perspective because I think this is just kind of a nice place to start. So let's just use, say, like the Russell 1000 growth and the Russell 1000 value, right? Kind of two various factors, um, you know, and when looking at either you have the value premium or you don't, in effect, is how I think about the growth side of it. And... Um, so using that, uh, look at those indices. You'll find they actually share constituents. And the issue with that is when you share constituents, it's like, can value make up its mind? And so when I talk about the diversification that some of smart beta has, you'll see that it actually shares a lot of holdings with things that from a smart beta perspective, it might not agree with from a value premium perspective. So I think that's one way of looking and saying, you know, why do we run concentrated portfolios? So we can focus on the things that we think are the most intense versus the things are, might be more diluted, but yet still represented in smart beta. Um, that's one way of thinking about it. But uh, to 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 your point, I'll, I'll give you guys a study that I think is phenomenal. Um, Kremers and Pettigisto did the original active share study, which everyone's aware of, and it's been out there for quite a long time. Um, but then Kremers, uh, when he was still at Notre Dame, um, he did a follow-up study with a gentleman by the name of um, uh, Anker Parikh, who was at Rutgers at the time. And what they asked is they said, okay, we know active share is powerful. So let's use active share as a factor. And then let's also ask if turnover is a factor. Back to my point about turnover. And what they found is that all the funds that did really well over their 25-year study had high active share, aka differentiated portfolios. And secondly, had low turnover. In other words, didn't waste their cost to, you know, to trading. Um, they then said, okay, of that quartile of managers that did well over the 25 years, let's look into that quartile. And let's see what other factors we can find in that quartile. They found two other factors, which was the value premium. And then secondly, what Cliff Asnes has been arguing since I think 2013, 
QMJ, quality minus junk. Okay. So, um, so we're, let's say, let's say we're, we, we got to pull Cliff Asness on this discussion. Okay. From a, from a pure investment perspective, there's three factors. Cliff would say there's value, there's QMJ or quality minus junk, and then there's momentum. And to your point, in our discipline, we have the ability to, to ascertain value. We have the ability to ascertain QMJ, but we have no ability to ascertain momentum. <laughs> right. So I, in other words, I, we, we think about these things in light of the factors to your point. At the same time, there's only certain things your discipline can or can't do. If someone asked me, Cole, why can't you figure out momentum? I'd be like, it's, it's like a, it's like a yogiism. You either have it or you don't. <laughs> yeah. That's it's a value. Uh, it's a value thing. Yeah. I mean, everybody talks about what's the optimal way of investing. The truth always comes down to what are your values? What can you stick to long term? Correct. And that will define how you're going to approach investing. And uh, you get, you know, I always tell the story, we, we used to go to to a large pension plan in Toronto and um, the CIO would sit us down to talk about momentum with their team. And it would be amazing. We'd have a two hour long discussion, exchange ideas. And by the end of it, we'd say, so what do you think? Do you, is there an opportunity for us to get some of that you know, momentum. So yeah. Like momentum. No, no, no. The chairman, the chairman of the board doesn't understand momentum. It's only high quality value stuff that you ever get. It's like, what, what am I doing here? Right. Like, don't you think that there's value in adding, there's value in adding momentum to, uh, <laughs> to your book is like a hundred percent. And there's all the data, data to back it up, but it's just never going to happen. Right? Yeah. It's just value. The value, uh, value <laughs> system of investing is crazy. Well, I agree. And by the way, here's a, here's the interesting part. And, and you guys have seen this and I think this is a really, interesting thing to think about. In the last 10 years, we, uh, we've we all ran into those people who said, oh, you know, I used to be a value person, right? Kind of like, you know, <laughs> I, I used to be, and then I came, I got to know Jesus to and I'm no longer. Now. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so, but, and, and, and here's what's interesting to me. They say that, and then they say, but you know, now I focus a lot more on quality. Well, now what are they really saying? They're saying, I thought this factor was an end all. I found out it, it wasn't mutually exclusive, by the way. And now there's this other factor and I've greatly overweighted that factor in my portfolios, okay? Now, the danger in that is you could set up this world where there could be negative alpha sitting in a factor and hugely positive alpha sitting in another factor. And I would ultimately argue that's what's going on right now. The quality world or call it the quality growth world is kind of getting its head kicked in while value is rocking and rolling and everyone else is wanting, wondering what's going on. And again, it, it is the value factor um, it is the quality factor. It is momentum, but how that plays out doesn't mean they're all mutually exclusive. Yeah. I mean, there's value in having the diversity, even within value metrics. I think Wes Gray did a, a paper a few years back where he did a horse race between the different value metrics, right? And had you ranked your 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 preference based on a back test, I can't remember, I think it was like 10 years ago, you would have chosen price to book uh, or book to price, depending on what you're reading. And sure. then, you know, 10 years later, you're looking at uh, enterprise value, over, no, uh, sales over enterprise value or something like that. And yeah. um, and the truth is you don't know. And, you know, there's many ways to skin the cat. And that's just on the factor side. But if you are an expert in space using whatever filters you're using and you have a little extra touch and you're disciplined about it, then you provide a value to the investment community. Agreed. Um, so, by so, the way, so well, I was going to say, I was gonna say I Wes, Wes, I think Wes had a really... I, if I remember correctly, what, what Wes, his research that I liked the best was I think 
Was he the gentleman that did What If God Managed what Money? What If God Managed yeah. Money? Yeah. He, he, oh. he wrote that the day we wrote one that was exactly the same, but with our managed yeah. future stuff. So what I, if I God lo- knew? I, yeah. I love his study because here's what I, you know, so everyone's looking and saying, you know, because he ran the God portfolio where it was like the top decile of stocks that, you know, you own for this whole set period. And he showed the returns. Okay. And obviously it had a great re- risk adjusted return. And, and then he showed the God portfolio, which was owning the best decile minus shorting the worst decile, okay? Now, here's what was interesting to me. Again, because God made the best money doing that, but the catch was that um, the volatility went way greater, okay? In other words, if you're just sitting back and saying, what am I learning thematically from this data set? To produce the highest returns, you must accept much higher volatility in the underlying securities. That's what Wes's study ultimately argued. So when people say, well, Cole, you know, it looks like you guys are on higher volatility. It's like, yes, the name of the game is get very, very wealthy. You don't care how you get there. So this is an interesting point. This is what this is up to my next question, because the value managers <laughs> tend to have higher risk. Correct. And so it kind of fits within their risk return uh, discussion. And, you know, when people say, well, that's that's too risky for me, there's a few things to consider, right? Number one is how is that extra risk uh, acting as a diversifier to number one, your traditional equity portfolio, and number two, to the rest of the asset classes that you run. Sure. And sure. so when you do a factor-based analysis, and Wes runs uh, very concentrated factor-based value portfolios, what you find is that volatility has information, right? When you, when you do a factor analysis against uh, any value manager, what you're going to find is you're going to find the beta to the market, so how closely mm-hmm. their return stream is, and then you're going to find the beta to value. And these are stacked on top of each other. Okay. Correct. This is not the, so let's say that the stock market runs a 15% volatility and your fund runs a 30% volatility. And when I do the analysis, I find that you have a full unit of beta of SPY beta, SP 500 beta, and mm-hmm. you have a full unit of value. So in essence, what you've done is you have increased the capital efficiency of your portfolio, right? If you're putting Correct. in, if you have a uh, hundred dollars, you put 90 in your 60, 40 and 10 into that value, value uh, portfolio, what you're really doing is you're adding 10% on S&P and another 10% in something completely different, which is the value factor Correct. as an example. And so it, what I think when it, part of that argument, it's higher volatility needs to be yes, but a lot of that volatility, because it's so different, might actually reduce the overall volatility of your portfolio. Well, I think I, that's a discussion that's not being had uh, enough well, within well, the I'll go, I'll go one step further to your, to your point on that. Um, so the reason why I bring up Wes's study is I gave, uh, uh, I gave a talk and I can't remember exactly the title of my talk, which probably doesn't bode well for me, but, um, I gave it a two, I gave it two years ago at an internal retreat. Um, and I, uh, I think I call it the, the willingness to underperform was the title of my talk. So I took, I looked at, at, at uh, his study and then I went out and studied. Um, in fact, uh, I'm trying to remember James Grant, uh, has all the Sequoia fund returns in one of his books going back to, you know, when they launched in July of 1970. And so if you took Sequoia Fund, if you took the Munger-Wheeler partnership, if you took, um, you know, uh, uh, Berkshire Hathaway, and you took various investors like that. Sir John Templeton was another one that we used. We went all the way back to the, you know, the, the Templeton, um, uh, Templeton Global Fund. Um, what the, the weird part is, to your point, is I can go out and prove that each of those quote unquote great investors had to make up a 40 
5% cumulative outperformance stretch to get back to beating the index at some point. Okay. So when I hear these people say like, oh, our whole industry is built right now around trying to reduce volatility. And and the other part about this is to your point, uh, you could go back and look at volatility. But if you said, Cole, what's volatility from now to the next year? I could tell you only God knows, because honestly, only God knows. So I, I, I find it interesting when volatility can shift pretty rapidly. Think of what volatility of the energy space was, you know, you know, the last 10 years. And now you look, it's like this massive diversifier to your point in portfolios that no one had expected. Um, it's actually making people look not so stupid um, in so many respects. And so I, I that's the weird part of volatility is as a measure, like back to my point on momentum, wh- why do we not use momentum? Because we have no ability to your point in how we value businesses and how we go out and approach what we do to go out and price it. In effect, we can't price momentum. We have no ability to do that. But just like I can look and say, okay, I can understand the quality of the balance sheet. I can understand you know, how sticky the customer is and how sticky you know, the free cash flow or earnings power of the business is. But if you said, okay, they're in a transition season, what does that mean for volatility? I don't know. Hmm. I, I can't know that. So to your point, I, I really agree with the idea of understanding who you are as an investor and therefore what you should value in your discipline to go out and make money. That's actually unique to us each individually. That isn't something that we can commonly just attach to and say, you know, by God's grace, I'm a value pe- person like everybody else. But people often do that right after that season was awesome, right? So by 03, everyone was a value investor because no one was going to be a growth investor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? no, now, no every, now, now everyone's a quality yeah. investor, no, right? Because, you know, all those value wrong. investors are stupid. It, it is. And, and this is where I think what my, my goal for every investor listening to this is to, to recognize the value of diversity and diversification rather than yeah. being one thing or another, right? Cole, you talked about a value manager. You used to be a value manager then you had a come to Jesus moment because it's a value yeah. manager. <laughs> the, the, the reality of we don't know, we don't know which uh, approach is going to perform in your lifetime or in the three-year period that you're going to be judged against if you're an advisor. Yep. What you do know is that first you have to have confidence that whom you're investing with is going to have a positive expectancy. You have a confidence that it's going to provide a diversified return stream and then you got to put them together in a thoughtful way and rebalance. If you do those three things, you can include everybody you want, right? If you have those three three premises to start with. And then when you're thinking about BlackRock value versus uh, Cole Smead or Smead uh, asset management value, I the same analysis of how much beta it versus how much the, of the factor you're getting in those large ETFs where you have to be large just because of liquidity. Yeah. It ends up being something like you, you get... 1% beta as you get in the S&P or one full unit of beta and like 5 to 10%, so it's like 0.1 of actual value. Whereas with concentrated portfolios like yours, you're getting significantly more, right? I haven't done the analysis on, on your portfolios, but it is it, just by looking at your holdings, it's most definitely going to be a significantly powerful portion of a true diversifying value metric where you don't need to use leverage in order to get that exposure because it's already embedded in the ETF. So that's another important thing when you're thinking about not every, if you're thinking about diversifying, you're just thinking in silos of value, momentum, quality. You also want to dig a little deeper into the managers that you're going to use to make sure that you're getting the most bang for your buck. Um, so a word to the wise, I think concentrated value portfolios is the way to go. Um, but anyway. I didn't pay him to say that, by the way. No, yeah. no, this is... A, <laughs> So just don't buy 100% coal. I just, 
You know, that, that is amazing. Guys, that was, that was an amazing discussion. I just want to say, you know, I was maybe a little bit worried, you know, about, uh, you know, having a, a quant, you know, versus, a, you know, fundamental investor <laughs> together. Oh, that's and a loose cannon. A fight. <laughs> <laughs> no fight. No, there was you gotta no fight. You got to keep it spicy, Pierre. You got to keep it spicy. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, uh, Cole, we, we appear to be at this major turning point. You know, I mean, it's been unfolding for the last year, um, a change in regime, which I think you've very aptly described in your own, you know, within your own uh, philosophy uh, and thought process uh, in your four most recent notes. So it's, it's really, it's a perfect time to ask you about the points you made. I, I want to, uh, I know we talked about this uh, somewhat in our uh, first uh, conversation that we had a few weeks ago. But I, I, I'm still stuck on this, and I, I think we should start with the Jevons paradox. I think many investors believe that technology will ultimately reduce the demand for energy. Yeah. But as you, as you pointed out in your note, um, Mark Mills, uh, co-author of Bottomless Well and uh, the Cloud Revolution in 2021, uh, Bottomless Well in 2005, um, did a really good job of getting you and. Uh, your your vision uh, past that cognitive disconnect. Um, so can we dive into that? Yeah, that'd be great. And by the way, uh, Mills, I think we I said this on the last time we we visited, but Mills, um, you know, you, you have to have a framework. Back to our our discussion about the volatility that's unknown in the future. What kind of framework are you going to use for trying to understand an unknown future? That's I mean, that's that's what Mark has really helped us in. Is you know he 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 has a great uh, academic and scientific background, and because of that, um, you know he's not breaking the law of physics when he says what he says. Um, versus, I don't have to be a physicist to understand that. I just have to understand that Mark is well. Uh, he's he's well based in what he's coming from, and secondly, it's a great framework to go out and think about things from a practical, economic, and pragmatic perspective. So, um, so real quick, so the, the Jevons paradox. Came out of the fact that um, you know at, at the time uh, you know in the UK that that Jevons you know came up with this paradox um, you know coal was in short supply and the fear was that if um, the abundance of coal consuming products took off that they would have a scarcity of coal that was in effect um, the the problem that that Jevons looked at and so the policymakers at the time classic um, they're like oh no we have to limit this because we're going to run out of coal. And the reality is that's not what transpired. Coal use greatly increased, and so did therefore the production of coal. But but there the Jevons paradox for what it was used for, the what you should ascertain out of it is in effect that the because of the technological innovation happening in coal at that time, people didn't consume less, right? We didn't have a scarcity of coal. No, they consumed way more. And that is really the most important part to the Jevons paradox. Because many people today would say, hey, listen, we're going to create all these great technologies, which, by the way, we will. That's true. And because of that, dot, 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 they conjecture that, therefore, we're just going to use way less energy. And yet, there's just no precedent for that happening. Um, you know, there, That's never actually happened in the history of the modern world. We've never used less energy doing all these great things in human society with all the ingenuity and all the innovation and all the technology available to us. And Jevons really, you know, his, the paradox he, he created really pushes back on the scarcity of supply argument as well as 
the um, lack of demand argument because we always have more and more and more. So let's just use what we're doing right now. I mean, think of how much energy is being physically consumed while we do this podcast. I can see both of you over on video. It looks pretty clear. I know that takes real data. I know that takes real content, tons of energy. And by the way, the fact that it's going from one place to another to another, it takes energy to move energy, okay? Um, these are all Millsian thinking that I'm throwing out to you guys. So I just point this out because again, we're not using less technology. If we went back to the Luddites where it's the 19th century, um, you're in the Southern United States and you're pushing an ox through the field. Um, yeah, by the way, we use way less energy and we did way less of everything, okay? So there's yet to be a point where we don't go out and do a lot more with the technological innovation, but the catch is that the technology actually is what requires a lot of energy. So I think we talked about, Pierre, like the laser, the LED. Right. These are all technologies <clears throat> that were highly efficient at what they did, and yet we continue to consume more and more and more. And I think one of the things that comes out of this is, you know, we sit in the Western world, right? Where, you know, generally speaking, we're all wealthy relative to the rest of the world, but we work in the investment business. So therefore, we're wealthy relative to the rest of society too. And in the Western world, whether it be Canada, the United States, the UK, et cetera, um, when you're rich, you can kind of pick and choose how you want to go about through life. That's true in the Western world. But when you're in Africa, when you're in Asia, you don't have those luxuries. You're glad to just have electricity day to day in some of those parts of the world. And therefore, economic growth is decided by the stability of energy um, versus we're debating, you know, what do we want to consider stable or not? That's a little bit different discussion. And so I think Mills has done just a wonderful job of helping us understand those kind of framework issues for getting to where we are. And it really gets me to this point where it's like, if we're going to be doing everything we're going to be doing in the cloud, like he writes about in 20, in his, in his 2021 book, um, I think even technology people are massively underestimating the energy consumption of the next 80 years of economic growth, frankly. So, so Cole, let me understand, I understand the framework, um, you know, that more, that it, there will always be a rise in energy requirement. The yeah. population of the world has gone um, parabolic. It's not likely to stop anytime soon, yeah. although some people may argue that, depending on what Elon Musk uh, plans to do to get people to start yeah. having more children. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then, and we talked about coal in the beginning. Now we have coal, oil, and other derivatives. Yeah. It's always a supply demand issue, right? Yep. So when you what, tell me about the thesis that comes out of this for an, from an investment standpoint, um, because it, I could see it going many directions, not just a, not not just a simple answer that that is buy more oil. Sure. Well, so so to your point, so I think you think of everything I just said. Now, did you hear me say, "Hey, by the way, we're going to do way less renewables and solar"? No, I didn't say that. So it's it's weird to think about, you know, often people think in investing because you're excited about something, you must hate everything else in the space. And no, again, they're not mutually exclusive, okay? So how I look at the world based on this framework is we're going to do more renewables, okay? But we're going to do a more of a lot because the needs are going to be so great. And I think that's what's really being missed. It's not, hey, I won, so you lose. It's the needs are going to be present. Um, as an example, I was looking at a chart earlier today based on 2023 so far, and they show what they call the duck of uh, California wind and solar consumption. And they call it a duck because obviously by 12 to three o'clock every day, wind and solar are actually doing their job finally at that point. But here's the catch. California is producing so much wind and solar, they can't use all of it from 12 to three. <laughs> okay. 
So yeah. w- what do you do? Well, you you got to sell it as cheaply as you can get rid of it. Um, and then at eight o'clock that night, you're back again, paying for a lot of energy costs because you can't produce it yourself. So I point that out because, well, what would tangibly fill that need? Well, that would be like lithium batteries. The catch is that if they're going to go on and doing more wind and solar like that, guess what? You need more lithium batteries. That's that's great technology, by the way. Those require a lot of energy consumption. Okay. Um, and by the way, they deplete. Those metals deplete. So I, I find it really interesting as you kind of look at this framework and world, we're not saying, hey, we're, we should be picking winners and losers. We're just saying, hey, you need more of everything. But it's interesting that the market is picking winners and losers. They're placing much higher valuations on some while putting much lower valuations on others. And um, I've got a great book, by the way. I, I'm finishing out the book Volt Rush. Um, I don't know if you guys come across it by Henry Sanderson. Um, he actually explains like the history of the lithium batteries. Fantastic history. Um, it's two inorganic metals that have been put together as a hybrid. One, the negative electrode, one, the positive electrode. And then you have the, another metal playing the cathode in between. I call that a hybrid battery is what it is. Right. Now, I find it interesting that in that hybrid approach to lithium batteries, what we know as lithium batteries, you know, all the, all the academics and scientists say, oh, that makes sense. We put these two inorganic materials together. They didn't like, seem like they made sense, but in this battery format, they make perfect sense. And they're actually the lightest weight, greatest efficient use of our capital to do this. Great. But then if you go to those same people and say, okay, now, you know what? electric motors do really well is they get to speed very quickly. But as we all know, the battery's really heavy if you have to run at speed for 100 miles. So therefore, it doesn't run at speed very efficiently, but it gets you to speed very quickly. What does the combustion engine do bad? Well, it doesn't get to speed very efficiently, right? It's a combustion engine. It takes a lot to speed up. That's where most of the energy consumption is. But what it does is it runs at speed really consistently and efficiently. So I find it interesting that this group that came together and said, let's create this inorganic material put together to create a hybrid battery that is a superior phenomena while together would look and say, combustion engine paired with electric motor. No, no, that can't happen. <laughs> right? In other words, it's actually a hybrid like that was the, the lithium GM battery. Volt. I remember yeah. when the GM Volt came out, it was yeah. a hybrid model. I don't know if it well, still is, but it well, was correct, but, a brilliant thing. But again, remember, because so in a combustion engine, the engine is where all the weight is, right? That's where most of the weight is. And that's what is the negative to a combustion engine versus as we all know in electric cars, it's the battery. So what you get into is a world where if you can have like a four cylinder combustion engine running you at your 70 miles an hour, 100 kilometers an hour um, as you drive along, but you didn't get to that speed outside of the electric motor, that means the electric motor has a very tiny battery. And when you're running that combustion engine at, 70 miles an hour, 100 kilometers an hour, what are you doing to the battery? You're recharging it off the alternator. Well, that seems like a very interesting pairing of great technologies together, like the lithium battery, might I add. And yet at the same time, the people in that camp- I think there's, it is the the new generation of uh, people caring about the environment. And I got to tell you, Cole, I'm, I'm born and raised in Lima, Peru, a city of 10 million people. Uh, we get all the used cars that you Americans don't want. Yeah. And there is some uh, some uh, side effects to owning a combustion engine that you know, lead to all types of cardiovascular disease, not cardiovascular, uh, pulmonary issues, right? So there's but, there's well, also the unintended consequences there, there's of all ex- of yeah, that. Yeah, right? there, there's externalities, but I'll give you yeah. one other example. So if you go back and look at the history of the world, say the last thousand years, okay? Here would be my, I'll throw this out to you guys because I've never asked this question in a public format, so I got to ask it now. 
what is the bigger danger looking over the last th- a thousand years? Is it a colder earth or a warmer earth and why? So I throw that to you guys. What would you say? <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, that is, Go ahead, so Rob. it is a colder earth for sure. It, okay. It's the biggest now, danger. But why? That'd be my answer. Like my question would be why? Simply because you can't get things to grow on ice. Correct. You starve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the history of the yeah. world is that a cold earth starves us versus today, to your point, there are externalities to a warmer earth. And yet at the same time, we have the least amount of starvation going on in the history of the world today. Oh, no, there's a, there's a greening effect to CO2 that pe- few people talk about. Like, they, yeah. I remember when I grew up, it was about deforestation because of the amount of CO2 that's gone out of the atmosphere. The Amazon Trees has love actually it. grown. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, it is, but it is uh, all of this is a, a matter of balance between different priorities. Yeah, I was obviously. just about to, to say that. Totally agree. Totally agree. And, 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 and to also, balance. ultimately, yeah. we, you know, I look, I run models. I know what I can model out, uh, what I can predict. The most I think I can predict with our models is five days ahead. Right. So the idea of whether we're going to go warm or cold over the next 50 years based on a single iterative model is really tough for me to swallow as a modeling person, right? Correct. I just, I, I, the, the accuracy of these models are very difficult for well, me yeah, to, th- to understand. Th- th- so think I, of, we don't really think, know. Think of, think of how people look at, say, active management or, or just anyone that invests money, to your point. They, like the academics would ultimately say, use, some, use a firm like ours, use a firm like yours. They would say, listen, to be realistic about whether you're adding alpha or whether you can consistently repeat this. We need 50 years of data. Minimum. Okay, minimum. Okay, but- uh, Daily data. <laughs> daily data. <laughs> yeah. Now, now we have like, I'll call it questionably 50 years of data, maybe 50 years of daily data in a population that, you know, some would argue is, is millions of years. Others might argue is as short as 10,000 years. And we're saying, oh, but we got the sample figured out. I mean, the and big issue like, is, is number one, whether it's a cyclical issue, number two, Correct. who caused it. Correct. You know, all the, mm-hmm. the causality versus um, uh, causation versus uh, correlation is a big issue here. But Agree. It, we don't want to get pure canceled. It's, this is a Canadian show call. It's not, uh, <laughs> not going to be useful. But you know, for, you know what? I, I feel like you know. I feel like you know. We're talking around ESG sustainability. You know, uh, to your point, Cole, about you know more wind, more solar. Well, more wind and more solar requires more lithium because you can't store the energy unless you put it into a lithium battery. And the lithium battery production requires a huge amount of uh, energy to produce and a huge amount of energy to run and, yeah. and maintain. And then it has to be replaced so uh, eventually. And, and so, so when you consider what the costs are beyond the financial, what the cost is of energy, uh, it just, I mean, it does reinforce the thesis that you know, of the paradox. Um, yeah. but I, I feel like, I feel like, you know, we've, we've, one of the crossroads we're at right now is that, you know, all that, all the extremism of sustainability and ESG needs to, it's not that it needs to go away. It needs to moderate. It needs to come back to a balance, the same balance that we're talking about with, you know, CO2 levels and, and temperature of the earth. Um, you know, climate change, all these things, all these ideas need to go from being, you know, radicalized to, you know, back to something more moderate as well, where, where, you know, everybody can, you know, come together and, and coalesce around a balanced view of things as opposed to, 
you know, this imbalanced world that we're in right now, like where, where, you know, we have short, you know, we have shortages because of 10 years of underinvestment for, for all the reasons that that happened the last 10 years. Um, and, and again, to, and to your question, uh, Rod, which is that, you know, what's the thesis? Well, the thesis is that, you know, we've had 10 years of underinvestment. There's imminent shortages, uh, as a result of the underinvestment. And, and then, and then even, even with investment now, it will take five to 10 years minimum before those projects, new projects bring energy online or produce more coal or produce the minerals and the raw materials to build all the things that we need for our infrastructure, for our right. energy infrastructure. And so is that the thesis, the underinvestment is a big part of this thesis uh, for you, Cole? Well, so I would say it, it helps, but I'll give you another way of thinking. I'll give you another theory out there. And um, Jeff Curry from Goldman Sachs, he points out that if they just put a tax on these things and said, listen, we're just going to tax it to make it effectively acceptable across society. In other words, like, hey, great, there's an externality. We'll tax it for its burden, whatever that is. I'm sure we could debate the finer points of that. But he said then portfolio managers and asset allocators would go out and be able to allocate capital based on what's very profitable for them. And he pointed out, but it, it, that's not what it is. It, it's like people are, they're making investments under the fear of what the repercussion might be for owning it. In other words, like effectively getting shamed by right. their investors, by their institutional investors, whoever that may be. And I think what that does create is, um, you know, and I'll use, I'll use Joel Greenblatt as an example. Joel Greenblatt, uh, his old books, How to Be a Stock Market Genius. Um, he said that small investors have huge advantages. So let's say you're the Canadian retail investor or the U.S. retail investor. You come in here and say, listen, I want to produce the kind of returns where I move up in line in the pecking order of my community, in the place I am. There's certain needs I want to meet, education-related, vacation-related, retirement-related, whatever that is. Well, guess what? Those are your objectives. And you can go invest based on that, and there's no strings attached. Versus a lot of, I'll call it the, the big money management firms or the large institutional investors, there are strings attached everywhere. And that's why those portfolio managers can't go out and act accordingly. The number one rule in the money management business, in the industry at large, is never lose the client. Okay, never lose the client. Um, now, by the way, it doesn't mean go make the best returns. That's never necessarily rule number one. It's don't lose the client. And so that don't lose the client, that's really what's driving these pressures on these issues that to your, to, I mean, to your, you guys point, we, we could debate this for four weeks and we would never settle right. how to deal with this finitely. And therefore it's the fear of how to settle it that has very much spooked the markets. But again, so we don't have any mandates on us. So what do we do? We're just allocating capital based on what's most profitable. Um, to your point, Rod, is it producing a lot of supply shocks? Unequivocally. Unequivocally, it's producing supply shocks. I'll give you an example. We ran a screen. It's it's one of the few times we ever run a screen. I I I know there's so few. So we ran a screen. We said, okay, how many coal businesses out there, either met coal or thermal coal, have at least three billion dollars of market cap uh, in in like everywhere but I think the emerging markets, and does at least eighty percent of their revenues in you know metallurgical or thermal coal? And the answer is there's six companies in the world that fit that. Okay, so just think, you got this big world, you got seven billion people. And we've baked down the entire coal market to roughly about six companies to begin with, which is strange. That often does not happen. You usually have a multiplicity of competitors in an arena. And to your point, what it's doing 
is it's leaving very few people in those kind of markets where um, people are just slowly exiting, right? They're slowly exiting. If you look at some of the buybacks that are going on in those realms, you can even see the minority investors. They're just slowly exiting that business to where you're going to wake up with oligopolies in these supply chains where you're going to have two or three people that are willing to take the brunt of you know, the lack of financing. They're going to be self-financing in the end because why would you ever want to have to deal with outside capital? And therefore, the pricing structures have to be rectified to show a lack of competition. And that's effectively what's unfolding. Nobody wants to be in the business. Great. The mafia had a bunch of businesses they wanted to be in that nobody else wanted to be in. And guess what? They were willing to break legs to make that money. And that's kind of where we're at on some of these commodity-oriented businesses. Also, to your point, Rod, there's like good commodities and there's bad commodities. We talked about lithium. Lithium could help solve part of California's supply problem. Great. Yeah. That's a good commodity. But um, all the things that are in the community where they actually make the lithium products and dig up the earth and take out the 7 or 8% lithium, where they get their electricity from coal, yep, those are bad commodities, even though they're sitting in the same neighborhood, right? So yeah. there, there's there's a duality, even though that we don't live in a dualistic world. We're building a duality that doesn't really make sense for your life or my life, Um it, 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 but that's the way the markets are building this. So again, um, I look at yeah, this like, as- like to, your, to your point, Cole, I mean, like those who want to invest in funds that invest in oil and those who don't. Correct. Right? There's this binary, I mean, to your point, it's, 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 it's becoming almost, it, it appears to be becoming binary where you have, you know, you have investors, some investors, a, a cohort of investors saying- Oh no no I don't want fossil fuels in my portfolio and and then that that's actually creating this huge inefficiency um you know that you point out in your note buying unwanted assets I think I think the 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 idea I think one of the points that you made in there that was really interesting uh, I think and it goes with your screen which is that um most of those companies have more cash than debt they're self financing cuz to yeah. Because to our discussion, like Rod, think about it like this. They have to. Would you, yeah, they yeah. have to be because you can't trust people outside of you anymore. Okay. So now here's the great part. Okay. So let's think of like normal business risks. Okay. The most common reason businesses fail is a poor capitalization structure. Okay. So quick quiz. Can we, can they go bankrupt tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's crazy. So normally in a cyclical business, like a commodity oriented business, right? Back to the, let's like think of like a QMJ framework, right? Quality minus junk. So, okay, cyclical businesses tend to struggle because their capital structure isn't usually good. When they run to those bad stretches, when profit margins drop way off because the commodity drops off, um, bankruptcy might be a question. But we're in a world right now where it is very common. You can find commodity businesses that either have no debt, oil and gas have been swallowing their debt for two years now. It's depleting at a rapid case and um, in some cases, that doesn't make sense, but they're almost to where they're debt free. And then in the case, to your point, in like some of these coal assets, they already don't have debt. They have massive amounts of net cash. And because they're in the stock markets, they are like a Canadian stock market or like an Australian stock market. The buyback rules limit your ability to buy back stuff enough stock to disgorge your cash. <laughs> right. So you're kind of stuck in that paradigm and you have to create a different way of managing a company, which is not traditional, where you have less debt, you're self-financing. And I guess it's not a bad idea if you're able, if you're unable to get the right financing from certain banks, given the current market environment. But I will say one thing, just as a side note, uh, yeah. with all these, these uh, ESG extremes, we now see in true American style, the God bless America ETF ticker. Yo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
my new favorite of all time. That's we got not, great marketers that in this country. <laughs> no, I agree. I, 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 I know you're totally right. But here's, so let's take what we just talked about, okay? And then let's take it together with what we talked about from a factor perspective, okay? So I'm, I'm, I'm the, the piece I'm currently working on is called The Game Has Changed, okay? It's called The Game Has Changed. And what I do, this is really fun. Um, the basketball one? It, yes, the, yeah. So what what we what what we do is we explain the history of the three pointer, which as we all know today it came in in 1979 to the NBA, and um, Larry Bird was a rookie that year, and he never shot a three point in his in his first rookie game. Okay, and by the end of his career he was a three point shooter. So the evolution of the NBA, people figured out, hey, it is points per shot. That's what you're you're looking at the efficiency of what I'll call the shot allocation. In our world, it's capital allocation, okay? And so if you can make 50% from, you know, two-pointers, you need to shoot 33 and a third percent from three-pointers. That way you get, for every shot, you get one point on average. The efficiency, okay? Well, if you go look at, it's Goldsberry who did the research, and his, by the way, it's funny part is I titled my piece that, and then I came across the research, and the title <laughs> of the research, the research was The Game Has Changed, um, oddly enough, which I felt, oh, perfect, God willed it, Um so when he shows his, he shows a chart from 00 to 01 season where NBA players at that time shot a lot more 15 footers, 17 footers, 13 footers. But in 2019 to 2020, there was like five to seven footers max. Everything else outside of that, of the top 200 shots were in three point land. Now, why? Well, it's actually the same kind of thing that we were talking about earlier as you think about factor investing. For example, in the NBA, if you shoot a shot at 21 feet, you get two points. If you shoot two feet further back at 23 feet, you get three points. So <laughs> why would you shoot a 21-foot shot? It's statistically tougher, yeah. and yet you don't get compensated for that extra risk. Back to our discussion earlier, thinking about the factors of this. So I explain this because to, your, to our discussion just a second ago, we're in a world now where I'll call it the two-foot bank shot, right? The easiest shot to make on the floor is the S&P 500, okay? That's the two-foot banker. It's like the layup, okay? Um, now, first off, I've seen people miss layups, just for the record, okay? But it's interesting that right now, think of the easy money things that people have done a lot of the last 10 years. Those close-in shots, the S&P 500 being widely diversified, I'll call it like the quality story, like we were just talking about earlier. Well, those aren't actually winning the game right now, right? Those are not rewarding investors versus... These riskier shot attempts, right? Commodity-oriented businesses, kind of buying against the ESG framework, et cetera. Those things are producing marvelous returns. And yet it's like the rest of the league hasn't figured out you could well, go out and take these threes. <laughs> it's classic, it's classic cyclical value exposure, Correct. right? I remember Correct. Back I agree. in the late 90s. I mean, the the weighting of commodities was minute, yes. And there was a gentleman in Canada, a bit of a legend, um, Eric Sprott, who ran the Eric Sprott Equity Fund. And through that 2000 to 2003 oh, period yeah. where NASDAQ got destroyed and, you know, in Canada, we didn't do so well because we had Nortel. Um, they were making double digit positive returns. Why? Because they found they found that that ugly duckling that nobody wanted. It was the commodity space. By the end, by 2007, it represented 30, 25, 30 percent of the of the um, index, and now we're back at it again, right? So it is really tough to get, like you said, Vanguard and BlackRock, those big players to move out to the three-point line. 
um, to to change their game, and they're not. You're going to need more nimble, thoughtful allocators. Well, in order well, to do totally. That. Well, because to your point, and I, this is something I skipped over, and it's like you already read my piece. I think yeah. um, that was you know the prior era to the three pointer was the big man era. Well, that's really what we're coming out of in the money management business and in the stock market. It was a big man era. It was a big money management firm. It was Vanguard. It was BlackRock. And you think of the constituents, the S&P, I think even right now, Microsoft and Apple are 14% of the S&P 500. And if you add the top five in total, it's 26%. It's a big man game. Yeah. So I, I point out, listen, if you're starting with a smaller capital base than all these other billionaires in the room, you're not going to win this game shooting the two pointers next to them. You got to go out. You got to find a different risk. Now, here's what's interesting. Did I say, hey, go take shots from half court that are insane? No. <laughs> Because again, you don't get compensated any more for hitting it from half court than you do from 23 feet. There's an optimum distance. Correct. Yep. There is. Yeah. And yeah. the question is, who can? Because those big money management firms, they can't sink a billion dollars into these things. Most of them are trapped out because of the size, which means that ultimately that smaller investor or that smaller manager, or that smaller fund has a distinct advantage in this environment right now. And let's think about also what people forget about that period is that that mid-knots period was the decade of active managers. I mean, the Magellan Fund and you know, I could name the Eric Sprott uh, Equity yeah. Fund. Like he was charging two and twenty in a long-only fund and still outperforming everything. Like you just, <laughs> it was you, you. You can't even imagine something like that today, right? And everybody owned it. Um, and and when you have a shift like what we've seen in the last 10 years where it really is the big man game where you got the big players dominating retirement portfolios and life cycle funds and just needing the liquidity of market cap. Um, and you, you will have decades where active management just does underperform. But that's that there's an ebb and flow to this life and you're going to need to start. I, I My fearless prediction, you know, don't take it, take it with a grain of salt. My fearless prediction is that 10 years from now, Everybody will want active management and recognize how how silly it was to have 100 percent of your portfolio in market cap, right? Well, so it, you yeah, have to... I agree. Well, I mean, to your point on commodities. So, um, <laughs> if you if you look at the if you look at the this was the worst drawdown on a relative basis of stocks and commodities. Um, it's it wasn't as long. If you look at the duration of this, it wasn't as long as other periods. But the drawdown on a on a relative basis was bigger than it ever been. To your point, twenty eleven to twenty twenty one, I think twenty correct, correct, yeah. twenty twenty one. That 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 relative drawdown was the biggest spread between those two. Now, here's what's interesting. I think this is um, LaForge uh, uh, LaForge at Wells Fargo. He had a great chart looking at okay, here's equity bull markets, and then right below it, and he shaded it. So here's like the bear markets of equities, and he showed the commodities over that time period, and the bear markets of commodities typically come in stock bull markets. And the bull markets of commodities typically come in stock bear markets. So it's interesting to think, again, that's why it's a higher risk phenomenon. It doesn't produce as high of a return as stocks do. At the same time, you can commonly find your point, like in the 70s, like in the 2000s, where these places produce really good ways to compound your money, while not a lot of the people make very good money. And, and that's kind of what we want to do. I show a chart yeah. every day. 1970 to two years, two years ago, before the uprun in, in commodities, mm -hmm. and just the commodity index, the Deutsche Bank commodity index, outperforms everything. Like it's yeah, but it outperforms <laughs> equities, bonds, uh, yeah. you know, gold. It just, of course, it has a decade of flat returns and a 75 percent drawdown. But th the point being that, again, 
talking about diversity, being having a willingness to get back in, right? Having a, an exposure to that space that might be overexposed for a while while the volatility is high and the opportunities are there. And and I, I do want to just kind of circle back. There's a lot of positive points with regard to why there's a, a supply disruption, why there's a demand benefit from for energy and and all the players that are going to benefit and the bad, good and bad things of lithium and good and bad things of everything. Yeah. yeah. Um, but we we actually did a, an interesting podcast with a man you've never heard, Alonso Gonzalez uh, from Mexico. He's writing a book on this about the abundance of, of energy that's coming down the pike. Uh, he is a glass manufacturer and started seeing the demand for glass go way up, started digging in and obviously realized that it's because of uh, the, uh, the solar panels, right? Mm-hmm. But there is a road here where because of all this disruption, we are going to find ways of making those very expensive things cheaper. And yeah. he actually goes into, right now it's really expensive and really damaging to the environment to actually produce lithium. But he, two or three plans are out there that will actually, like Elon Musk is, for example, going to have a soup to nuts, nuts supply chain where everything is going to be done via solar from the yeah. production at the mines, which doesn't exist today. That's where the most of, most of the pollutants happen all the way to, you know, bringing out the batteries for use. And the battery technology is improving. So there will be a shift here. But if you look at the numbers, it ain't going to be anytime soon, right? I don't mean, by it's not going to be next year. And we're talking about thesis that'll last maybe a half a decade, maybe more. But eventually this will turn. And all of a sudden, all those nasty arguments for lithium batteries and copper, and it just, they they'll turn around and well, and I know it's a new thesis and new well, ability to make money in a different sector. It's a, it's a willingness to shift to things that are ugly. Yeah. Well, and so to, so the, the like it used, it's used, go back to lithium. So li- the, the original lithium technologies were created about forty years ago, and if you look to your point, since then they've gone down ninety percent in cost. Okay, so they're already seeing classical supply curve uh, pricing functions going on. Completely agree with that. Now, I'm gonna I'm gonna go out and I hope this warps everybody's minds because we talked a lot about like the supply. What can meet the supply? What is going to be supplied, et cetera? Okay. But here's the catch. A lot of people that are really excited about solar, wind, and, and lithium batteries, they tend to fall into a camp that we that would say we have too many people on the earth. And I actually, like back to Musk, I, Musk is right sometimes. And one of the things he's sometimes right on, he said, listen, the risk of the world isn't too many people. It's too few people. Okay. So all the modeling we're doing in the Western world, the way we're trying to kind of think about this, we're assuming really one thing, that in 80 years, 80% of the population in the world will be Asian and African, because that's what the UN, for example, dominated by Western governments, is forecasting. And the real risk, and I totally agree with you, Rod, on this, is that we wake up in a world where that doesn't being true. We have way more people than even they model for in the Western world. And if you have that happen, the need for tighter supply costs become far more valuable. And the idea, I think one of the great myths, and I'll, I'll, I'll throw out one other book if you guys have come across this, um, but uh, Marion Tupi and Gail Pooley wrote a book called Super Abundance. If you haven't come across it, it's such a great book. But they point out that if you measure all these commodities or anything we buy day to day and look at the history of those goods, those inputs, whatever that may in time prices, where let's say you use unskilled wages or skilled wages or white collar wages, no matter how you want to track these, if you compare 50 years ago to today, what you'll find is all along the way in time prices, um, all these goods are getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Because to your point, Rod, 
the technology, the innovation that comes with them causes us to be able to buy them for less of our time each year. Okay. Yeah. And what it does is it creates, you know, this super abundance is what they argue. Um, now, part of the reason they argue for this super abundance is because there's so many more people in the world creating so much more brilliant ideas. And so if someone said, Cole, what's the biggest argument against this idea of super abundance and these increasing gains? Well, if we don't have enough geniuses born just from a sheer lack of number of people being born, I'm a, just so you guys know, I'm a, I'm a quantity over quality kind of person. Uh, I thought you were if about you, to say you're a genius. You're one of them. No, 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 I no. I, I was going to. I was going to say, if <laughs> if you have a billion people, you're going to have the same number of geniuses per 1,000 people, which means you're just going to have many, many greater solutions yeah. to all these problems. But if you don't have that billion people, you're going to have fewer Musks, fewer brilliant people like Warren Buffett. You're going to have fewer great thinkers like Cliff Asness, which means you might not get the blessings of those gains that you're talking about, Rod, if we don't have all these really brilliant, ingenious innovators in society. And I think that's the real damage is that we kind of like scare people off of being fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, have dominion. And you know what? Better yourself, your family, and your society. No, one of the saddest things I keep on hearing from 20-year-olds in my life is how terrible the world is. I have to remind them. You've never, (laughs) ever lived in a better time in the history Uh of the freaking planet. And you know, coming from Peru, (laughs) I would say that, and having been brought up there, it is it is so good to be alive right now, and it's so brutal that that these twenty year olds are uh, are just not making enough love. You know what I mean? Was that, well, they're, really, they're just being, really it, avoiding it, the their, their willingness to have to get married and have children. They um, know they know the of price of everything and the value of nothing. Yeah. Well, I, I just like it's like <laughs> to your point. I mean, if you just stopped and said, "Okay, look at your life expectancy. Look what you can do. Look at the educational attainment you can find." Look, look what you can go do in your work, your business, what you choose to do in your life, who you can choose to marry, et cetera. Okay. I, I do not understand how this is a bad world. <laughs> I've is, yet to is, chalk. It's it, incredible. It's truly world. unbelievable. I think Elon Musk is going to solve all the algorithm problems and get him into a happier space. <laughs> I just, I, I know his ultimate goal is to make people uh, have more children via Twitter. That is, uh, I, that is my wait, wait, with, a, with a blue check, right? With a blue so check. if you pay, <laughs> did, did, if you pay did anybody, blue check, you, you will know, have. Did did anybody imagine like how much you could do at home? No, it's before it's COVID. It, I it's, mean, it's, it's crazy. If you truly just take a minute, yeah, to think about how good it is. It's just you can choose to to be all downtrodden about everything in the future of the world, but I mean, you know, even ChatGPT and all the tech that's coming out can make people feel. You can take it that direction, or you can choose to use it for good and and make your life easier, better, faster in every respect. So, well, yeah. so to, your, to your point, I mean, if you look at it in an Orwellian lens, okay, um, did the Luddites lose? Like, supposedly they would. And the answer is no. All the farmers, kids and grandkids um, are now very wealthy because it's fewer people running larger farms, dominating the agricultural landscape of the United States and really the world. In other words, they gained even in that Luddite style business in a Norwellian lens, they gained all the returns on capital that were accruing to them for their ability to reinvest and innovate and do all those things themselves. So I, I think, it, I, like to your point, what industry has not received greater economic returns from what we've done the last 20 to 50 years? I mean, I, it's very hard to find an example. It's a great point. It's a fantastic yep. point. Um, well, so just Pierre, you can edit this out, but my da- that was my daughter reminding me that I have to go. 
Uh, yeah. So if <laughs> figured as much. Awesome. <laughs> Call a great combo. Anyway, we'll give it a pause and then go. Hey, um, Cole, I wanted to ask you just to cap off this discussion because we've seen this 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 rotation into technology stocks on the back of what, you know, has been an, the other side of this discussion has been, you know, what, what you sort of, you very eloquently point out, which is cutting your way to prosperity. But, you know, tech stocks, at least definitely the biggest ones, probably the biggest beneficiary of cutting to their way to prosperity is, is Meta, uh, which you mentioned in, in your piece. Um, what are your actual thoughts on technology stocks right now? Because it, you know, it, it, it looks like the market has already priced in, you know, Fed cuts. Uh, I think in your, in your other, in your other piece, you point out the fact that, that we're more likely, more than likely in for persistent inflation rather than, 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 you know, a reversion back to, you know, 2%, um, or, or somewhere in between, but we're definitely in for, for more persistent in inflation as opposed to the view that, that, you know, the Fed will destroy the economy and bring us back to to 2% or less. Um, wh what are your thoughts on on the bet that investors are making off uh, in, on technology stocks that, that all this cutting activity and, and efficiency that technology companies are suddenly finding is the pathway to higher multiples? So it's a great question. Um, first off, think about this, this is funny. How did equity people become such bond savants these days? I just don't get that. You know, it's like they could have cared less about the bond, you know, market for a decade. And then suddenly they all can tell you what the 10 year treasury is and how that's going to help them. I don't get that. I mean, that just is, that's superfluous to me. But so to your There's point, a special thanks to uh, Louis Ranieri who made, who made yeah. bonds exciting in yeah, the 80s. Exactly. <laughs> uh, oh, and, and Michael Bloomberg for giving us yeah. our bond prices on a regular tick by tick basis. So, um, so I, from a, a kind of a market dynamic, this looks like a bear, this looks like, like a bear market rally, a dead cat bounce in those stocks. I mean, it just does. To your point, if you look at the underlying, you know, reports coming out of the business, and I'll, let's use Amazon as an example, the cloud hosting business is getting worse. If you think about, you know, these were the businesses, these were like these blue chip quality American companies that are unstoppable. And, but if you actually look at their revenue growth in, in these segments that are supposed to be so dominant, in real growth, the real growth is declining rapidly as we speak. Because yes, we have inflation. So if you grow 8%, yeah, well, how much of that was just inflation? And the answer is the real growth is declining rapidly in those businesses. They were growing far greater in real growth terms um, at, you know, prior to inflation showing up. So that isn't what the market was pricing in. That's not what the market was expecting. I don't think the markets really come to grips with those phenomena. And I'll use Amazon as the picture. Because, you know, if you're Amazon, the web hosting was kind of the, that was the creme de la creme part of your business. In Google's case, it was digital ads. I think so far, who's kind of gone the most unscathed in this is Microsoft, because Microsoft's hosting business is just as dependent on Office Suite growing because they share revenues between those two assets, right? If you're an Office customer, you're actually using some of the Azure in OneDrive, for example. So I find that to be a little bit interesting dynamic as we think about those. But I mean, I mean, just to think, you know, we're supposedly going to end this bear market with a, a you know a, a perceived winner like Amazon trading at fifty times earnings. That's not the way bear markets end. Um, you know, assume that we ended a mania in stocks and other asset classes, and we're just going to have a cute little adorable bear market garden variety. Uh, that just that just seems so implausible. So uh, in the interim, I think market participants are pretty lost. 
They don't know whether they should fight the last war. They don't know if they should pivot capital because you know of the things we talked about in various mandates or whatnot. I think most market participants don't really have a good sense of anything um, of what they're doing. And I, I think it's just so, it's, it's again, back to the idea. Everyone's still like, should we shoot the two-pointer? It looks better <laughs> than it did three months ago. And it's like, yeah, but you could still lose 20 or 30% of your net worth. Um, don't forget, Cisco never made it back. Oracle never made yeah. it back. Okay, those kind of things have happened and will happen. And that is very normal. In most cases, it usually takes seven to 10 years to fix massively overpriced securities. I, I, I noticed... Rivian's down 90%. Okay, great. That's a good start for that kind of, you know, high exciting phenomenon. Right. But um, the idea that this is over, I think that is very foolish. Uh, I would very much warn people that, hey, listen, what we've seen is tectonic. Um, you know, just like as Hemingway said, uh, you know, uh, things went, uh, were gradual, then, then sudden. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that's what we're going to see in this bear market too. We're probably only halfway through this. And so if there's anything, I mean, you know, my excitement for these three pointers we talked about, these commodity oriented business, these cyclical business, I'm not saying, hey, gosh, stocks look so damn compelling at large, you know, using the S&P 500. I'm saying there are a lot of terrible risks out there. And these three pointers look very attainable relative to taking such poorly timed two pointers out there. Yeah, that's a great. Point. Cool. Thank you. Uh, that, that, that was uh, terrific. Sorry, Rodrigo. I, I um. I wanted to ask you, make sure we asked you before we, we closed uh, our conversation, because I have a feeling people, you know, some people might be out there thinking, is this, you know, it, uh, a FOMO moment? I mean, am I, you know, that fear of missing out again, that that things are rebounding and I'm going to miss it? Or is it just a head fake? And I think you answered that question. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Well, yeah, I appreciate it. And by the way, don't forget the economy is not the stock market. And I think that's the other thing people are missing. Um, the economy of the world, I would say, has been far stronger than people expected. And the S&P 500 isn't holding up under those conditions. That's a different thing. Um, I'll just end it like on that note. I wrote a piece called uh, uh, Bears Grasp, uh, you know, how to, how to survive in a, in a multifaceted bear market. If you examine 2000 to 2003 and you look at value investing or you look at like managed futures trend, they all did really yeah. well from point to point. But if you actually look at what happened is you had, it wasn't the tech crisis. It started with the tech crisis. Then it was 9-11. Then it was Enron. Then it was Correct. a balance sheet recession. And there were many head fakes in between. And you look at the amount of time you spend treading water on those big winners over that three years. You spend 85% of your time. And specifically, I highlight managed to trend, but I could have done the same thing for value. Just basically making new highs very, very seldomly. But at the end of the day, it was something like 50, 60% return from point to point versus negative 50%. I was going to say, yeah, just by <laughs> making that good of money, you're like, wow, that sucked. But that sucked even more <laughs> over <right>. there. <laughs> it was brutal. And I talked to a veteran of the industry. I said, I can't wait for this next decade. It's going to be just like the 2000s. Like, I lived through that. That was yeah. the worst three years of my career, and I crushed it. So yeah. it's, just, it's important. I think what you said, Cole, is that it's, going, it's not going to be easy. You're going to be hitting three-pointers. You're going to probably be losing more of those shots. And you're going to, you're going to miss shots. You're going to miss yeah. shots. Um, yeah. But at the end of the day, you have to assess what is right for the goal when, when you have the goal in mind, uh, the end goal. It's just going to be a tough period for everybody. So whether you're a winning value investor, a winning alternative strategist, a winning stock picker, trader, it's going to be a rough go. It, I think it has already been pretty rough for everybody. Um, and so I just that's... 
you're an advisor listening, you got to educate, buckle up, the clients to buckle up, diversify, and um, and recognize what the goal is. Guys, that was amazing. Thank you so much, Cole, for your incredibly valuable time and your insight, Red, you. Rod. I was afraid there might be a fight, but... Nothing but love here, man. It's good. No, uh, it's awesome. I'm I'm just thinking, you know, sorry, before we stop, we should get, we should get Wes Gray on. Sure. I'll, I'll uh, him on. And Meb Faber and Cole and you and, and do like a five, you know, a, a like five or six. Style. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah uh, exactly. Well, then you let the podcast listeners vote people off slowly over the episode. <laughs> oh, I love that. Love that. That would All be right. awesome. All right. Thanks, guys. Awesome. Good to meet you, Rod. I truly have Thanks, to like, guys. run, run. Cole, the pleasure.